Hey, hello friends, and welcome to this message, which is specially handpicked to minister to you and to bless you. I am Pastor Lincoln Seranga, Senior Pastor here at Liberty Christian Fellowship in London. My passion is the pursuit of 100% answered prayer. If that sounds like a good subject to you, why don't you follow me at lincolnseranga.com and also find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and other social media where you will be able to find other messages as well as find access to short courses, coaching opportunities and more. God bless you as you listen to this message. Today I want to speak to us under um, a heading, Rebuilding the Ruins. And um, I'm going to be focusing a lot on the life of Nehemiah. Uh, it's a long story, and it's got so many themes in it. Uh, so you're going to be patient with me, and we're going to read the whole of chapter 1 together. Is, that, is it all right to read the Bible in church? Okay, chapter 1, and then um, we'll just read one verse in chapter 6. Nehemiah, if you guys are looking in the New Testament... Just back up, go into the Old Testament, and go to those small books that are just before Psalms. How many of you are there? If you're there, say, I'm there. Mm -mm. How many of that? That's like two. How many of you are there? Oh, you guys don't bring Bibles to church. I forgot. These days, you only read this thing. Okay, so... The, word of, the words of Nehemiah, or if, if you have um, NLT, I think it will say the memoirs of Nehemiah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanan, Hanani, one of my brethren, came with me from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and I wept and I mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great an awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, and we have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that, I, that you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commands and do them, Though some of you were cast out to the furthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to a place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Say amen if you're still with me. 
Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Somebody say amen. Okay, we're going to just jump to uh, verse 15 of chapter 6, which says, So the war was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. I'll read 16. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Amen. By way of history, for those of you that are not Bible scholars, this um, chapter happens after Israel has been broken, if you want, broken by Babylon. Babylon has come, plundered the land, taken away a large number of Israel Israelites, thrown them into captivities into captivity. A remnant remained in Jerusalem, but there were just a few. A lot of them were taken captive. And amongst the captives, there were those who, like Nehemiah, were not just captured, but they were castrated. And they were made eunuchs and given tasks in the palace. So I don't know about you, but I think people like Nehemiah, people like Daniel, um, all these guys that we read out about that did mighty things in their they got a really raw deal. Because not only did they lose their land, they lost their manhood, they lost the chance to have families, and they were lifetime slaves. Yes, you could say they were in the palace, but they were in the palace not as royals. They were in the palace as slaves. So this is the kind of person who we are talking about. This guy got a raw deal. To ask your neighbor, so what are you crying about? And this guy who got the raw deal, this really raw deal, leads a mission. And he leads a mission to restore the walls of Jerusalem. When he hears the news that they have come down, he's in his he could be in his little pity party, but he is quickened and he does the work of restoring the wall of Jerusalem in 52 days in his annual leave. He goes to the king and asks for annual leave. And he is given annual leave. And in, I don't know what you guys do in your annual leave, but in his annual leave, he restores the walls of Jerusalem. He even goes further and restores Jerusalem to the principles of God, all in his holiday time. And then he goes back to, Bab to Babylon, serves for a little while, and then comes back to sort out the people who have messed up while he went back to work. What a man. But before I go into the whole story of Nehemiah and pick out a few things that I want us to share today, I just want you to understand this, that the task 
of rebuilding broken things is not Nehemiah's sole task. It's not only Nehemiah's task. It is your task. It is my task. We have been called to rebuilding. And I want us to first focus for a minute on Isaiah 61, which is the portion of scripture that Jesus picked up and read at the beginning of his ministry. And he spoke it not only concerning his ministry, he spoke it concerning your ministry. And Isaiah chapter 61, if you guys throw it up in a minute, I'll just read a few verses from it. He starts by saying that the spirit of the Lord is upon me. How about we read it together? Because you're saying it over yourself as much as I am saying it over myself. Are you there? The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. I can't hear you. For the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. I like that. Go on, next verse. He sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies. Next verse. To tell all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. Next one. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, repairing cities destroyed long ago. They will revive them, though they have been deserted for many generations. We will repair ruined cities. We will. The Spirit of the Lord has come upon us to fix stuff. The Spirit of the Lord came upon me to fix stuff. If you read Isaiah 61, it starts with the Spirit of the Lord mending the brokenhearted. Mending those that are in a state. But after he has mended them, he says, then you will rebuild the ruined stuff. Look at your neighbor and say, you are here to fix stuff. Oh, I don't know about you, but that excites me. I am called to fix situations. I am called. There's so much broken stuff all around us. You just need to open your eyes and see. But the spirit of the Lord is sitting upon us. That after he may has fixed us, he uses us to fix our neighbor. He uses us to fix our families. He uses us to fix our community. We are called to fix stuff. Ask your neighbor, what stuff are you fixing? We are called to be fixers. God put you in your situation and he has allowed there to be brokenness around us because he has confidence in the ability he has placed inside of you to fix stuff. I look, you know, like you arrive in a new, I've started a new job and, and I realize there's stuff that needs fixing. 
Have you ever arrived in a new situation and you're kind of disappointed that things are not perfect, that things are not all lined up for you? Uh, you get married and then you realize, oh my God, that guy needs fixing. And that's because the spirit of the Lord is upon you because he has anointed you to fix stuff. Some of us like things that are already done, ready-made. But you see, God is not about ready-made. He's about bespoke. He is about making you make the thing work. And you and him can rejoice when you see the finished product that is made by you and him. He is upon us to fix our environment. Hallelujah. And this guy, Nehemiah, who was made an eunuch and thrown out of his country and made to feel like a slave, he knew that even though I am a slave, I am far from my motherland, he did not forget the fact that the spirit of the Lord was upon him to fix a situation. And the Bible says he did it in extraordinary time. Actually, when you read the scriptures, Nehemiah was not a builder. That was not his profession. So he didn't have the wherewithal to do the task. He was just an ordinary guy. A eunuch who had been plucked out of his home. He was an ordinary person who did extraordinary things. Tell your neighbor, I am an ordinary person who is going to fix stuff in an extraordinary manner. That is what the Spirit of God is going to do with me. He's going to take this ordinary little girl and he's going to use her for extraordinary things because we serve a mighty God who can. Amen. Now, I want us to just look for a minute about how. How did Nehemiah do it? How did one little guy who was a cupbearer, a waiter, how did he fix a nation in 52 days? How did he restore their dignity in 52 days? How did he do it? How is it doable? And I just want to point out to you a few tips from the life of Nehemiah. Is that all right, Liberty? Number one, it began with his passion. Somebody shout passion. I'm sorry, I have the mic, but we're preaching together, right? Somebody shout passion. It all begins with passion and compassion. Fixing anything begins with a passion in your heart. Doing anything extraordinary in life begins with a passion in your heart. Being of any impact whatsoever begins with a passion in your heart. It begins with a passion. If we go back to the story of Nehemiah, the, the story begins with him saying that his mate Hanani comes and tells him the story about how the walls have fallen down and how the children that are in Israel are living in such a bad state. They are in distress and they are in reproach. Now listen to me here. Lots of people knew that fact. It wasn't a secret. Lots of people knew it. Actually, people that were in Israel who were closer to the ground knew the fact. They had seen the walls. 
Some of them were living in the distress and in the reproach. But this guy who is miles away in a palace hears the news. And the difference between him and them is it hits his passion. It hits something in his heart. And he says, he fell down, he sat down and he wept. And he mourned for many days. And he fasted. You see, you can never make a difference to anything if it doesn't hit your passion. If it doesn't hit your heart. If it doesn't arise emotion. I don't care how unemotional you look to me this morning. I know that emotion is in there somewhere. And until the purposes of God hit that emotion, nothing will be done in the kingdom. Until God was at a standstill, until someone called Nehemiah got bothered about the state of things. Now, there are many things that we look around in the world and we say, God, why aren't you fixing this? And God, why aren't you fixing that? And God, why aren't... And he's saying, because I can't find your heart. I can't find your passion. I can't find anybody who's passionate about this. I can't find anybody who will weep about this. I can't find anybody who will fast about this. I can't find anybody who will be restless until something's done. Until God gets your passion, nothing gets done. And God's greatest challenge in fixing our world is getting you to be bothered. Yeah, I think I'll just park there for a minute. God's biggest problem is he has got an army called the church who sing the songs and read the book, but they are not bothered. Something happened to our passion. And some, some of the reasons are this, why we are not passionate. Some of us have no passion. Zero passion. Life just happens. We wake up, we eat, we work, we go to sleep. We wake up, we eat, we are... Nothing puts us in a corner. There's nothing we weep about anymore. There's nothing we travail in the presence of God about anymore. Nothing exercises us in the place of prayer anymore. Unless somebody takes food away from your table. Hey, then prayer is born. Because you need food. But I, let me tell you, our passions have died for a number of reasons. Number one is, we are so self-absorbed. This is the generation of the selfies. It is in our day that the selfie became popular. And there's no mistake about that because the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 to 2 that in the last days there will be perilous times for men will be lovers of themselves. Selfies. No, uh, lovers of themselves. So self-absorbed. Everything 
is about you and making you comfortable. And while you're self-absorbed, Hanan, Hananiah, whatever his name is, can say all he wants about what the state is of Jerusalem. You're just too absorbed with you. And so our passion has died. Because let me tell you something about prayer. You can only pray so much about bread and personal things. You cannot spend three hours in the presence of God saying, God, give me bread. God, give me bread. God. There's nothing to it. God has designed you to fix things. And he's designed you to work with you in fixing things. And until you find your thing to fix, there will be no passion in your heart. So one of the reasons why we are not passionate is we are self-absorbed. Tell your neighbor, if we could get you to stop focusing on yourself, the world would be a better place. I just, I look with amazement. Um, I'm an I'm a, I'm a infrequent visitor in the, on Facebook. But I look on Facebook and um, there's all these Christians and their message is look at me. Not look at me as in Acts of Apostles, but just look at me. Everything is about self-absorption. But the time has come, saints, when we need to be absorbed by something else. We need to have a story that's bigger than just you and your new dress, what you bought, that looks nice on you and you need to show the world. Don't you have something more to tell the world? Don't you have some bigger news than that? It is time for us to be, be doing bigger and better and greater things and to be absorbed with more than just ourselves. I'll tell you the other reason why we are so self why we are so impassionate, unpassionate. We minimize things. We are in the generation where we minimize things. And the major news, everything that happens, people say it's not that deep. If Hanan's friends, I mean Nehemiah's friends had been in our day and they had come and told him about the state of Jerusalem and watched him fall apart and sit on the floor and weep and fast and I bet you they would have said to him, Nehemiah, it's not that deep. Everything is minimized in our day. I was Really shocked, not too long ago, I was trying to help a young lady who, um, whose marriage was on the rocks. And from how do I, what I was looking about, at how I was looking at it, she was heading towards divorce. And so I took time, I took time out, cancelled things, and I was passionate because I was saying, not another one, Lord. Not another broken home. Not another set of children who don't know their father. No, Lord. I refuse it in Jesus' name. I mean, it wasn't my home. My home, my, we are together. I love that man like I loved him from the beginning. But somebody's home was dying. 
And so I sat her down. I'm teaching her principles. I'm like, no, 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 my friend. You can't do that. It is going to destroy your family. At a certain point, she threw her head back and she laughed. And she said, Pastor Grace, it's not that deep. She said to me, lots of single women have raised children. It's not that deep. We look at our society, we look at how many people there are that are that we could fix. What is our response? It's not that deep. We have learned how to minimize everything. Nothing matters. The people in the neighborhood are killing one another. The young people are stabbing one another. Do you notice that even now in the news it's not that deep? I remember like some six, was it six or however many years ago, where every stabbing was reported. Now they don't report it. It's not that deep. Another reason why our passion has been lost is our hearts have become callous. And we have become insulated. You know, sometimes when you go through pain, or you've tried something and you get disappointed, you insulate yourself. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Build walls, build things up. You insulate yourself. You protect yourself from further damage. When you have a cut on your skin, what the skin does is it fixes, but the, the skin that comes over is a bit hard and callous. It's not the same nature or softness as the skin before. It's like the body is saying, we've got hurt once, we're not getting hurt once more. But today, I want to speak to your hearts. I want to reach to your heart and I want to appeal to your heart. Whatever has made you insulated, whatever has, is making you minimize things, whatever is making you shut out the purposes of God, I appeal to you in Jesus' name. We need your heart. We need your heart to come back to the place of serving God. We need you to be passionate one more time. Yes, I know that things have happened. Yes, I know maybe you stood up to minister, something happened, and you sat down again. Yes, but the God says that the righteous man sit, falls down seven times, but you get up. And it's time for us to put our hearts back into the work of God. It is time for your heart, your passion is so key to the work of God. So key that the Bible says, guard your heart, for for it comes the issues of life. What the enemy does is he tries to do things so that your heart is removed from the service of God. So that your heart is taken away because he knows if he gets your heart, he's got you. If God gets your heart, he's got you. I want you to speak over yourself and command your passions to be reignited. Command your heart to be restored to the place of service of God. Command your passions to be reignited. The first thing that God used in restoring the walls of Israel was Nehemiah's passion. The next thing that God used was provision. 
after the next stage, once he had engaged his heart, the next stage was God connected him to a king and provision. Let me tell you something. The things that God has called you to fix, he has already provided. Even before he stirs your heart, he has already provided. He has already given the way how it's going to happen. He is just waiting for you to be keen enough to stir your heart. He has already provided. Why do I say that? I say that because of this. I learned a fun fact as I was studying this portion of scripture. You see, in our Bibles, the Bible goes Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra, uh, sorry, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, right? But chronologically, it's supposed to go Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra. Because Esther happens before Nehemiah and then Ezra. So Esther, God used her in her position to um, save the Israelites from being killed. Then Nehemiah builds the wall. And then Ezra builds the temple. Got it? So that's the way around that it should have been. Now, I was studying and I, I discovered, if you read in chapter 2, the Bible says that after Nehemiah began to carry this thing in his spirit, and he's weeping and he's crying and he's fasting, and it has so possessed him that it's all over his face. It has changed how he looks. You know, when you get to that stage, you're ready for the next stage. He was carrying this baby. It was affecting how he looked. And he came into the presence of the king. Now here's the fun fact I discovered. The king that he was com coming in front of was King Artaxerxes. I don't know how to say that name. But it's this, that, that name is just a title. But he's the same guy who was Esther's husband. He was coming to a king whose heart had already been moved towards the purposes of God. This king had already encountered the force that is called the people of Israel. This king had already changed decrees and done things in the name of saving these people called Israel. And the Bible says that Nehemiah came before this king. And the Bible says he was terrified. I'm paraphrasing because we don't have time to read all of that. He said, I was terrified and I went into the presence of the king. You know what? The greatest people in, uh, on earth are people who are scared of doing stuff, but they do stuff. It's not about being brave. It is about being bold. It is about being bold in the power of the spirit. Being bold doesn't mean that you don't feel the butterflies in your tummy. It doesn't mean that you don't feel the anxiety. It doesn't mean that you don't worry about it. It just means something bigger than the worry. Something bigger than the fear has taken over. Something that overrides the fear. Something that pushes you even when you're afraid. But you say, I'm going to do it anyway. Because unless I do it, it's like a fire shut up in my bones. I have to do it. He comes with that fear in his stomach and he stands before the king and the king just looks at him. God orchestrates it that the king asks the question before Nehemiah has to say anything. And the king says, what is the problem? 
What is it these days? Your face has fallen. Now, you know what? Like, let me just sidetrack for a minute. Um, it's good to have joy because when the burden of the Lord is upon you, people can notice the difference. But if you're miserable all the time anyway, we wouldn't notice the difference whatever is going on. If he was not a happy guy, the king never would have noticed that something has changed. So tell your neighbor, fix your face because next time we're going to need to see a difference. Anyway, back to the point. So he's getting himself ready, ready for a battle. You know, my husband always talks about how you, um, it used to be in Uganda. You know how when you, you've firmed yourself up because you think you're going to pick up an, a full jerry can. Those of you who don't know what a jerry can is, I don't know how to explain it. It's just a can with lots of water. So, have you ever tried to pick one up and you're, you've muscled your strength and you're getting ready for the heaviness and you pick it up and it's light? <laughs> Nehemiah found himself in that place. He was armed to the teeth, ready to tell the king all this thing. But God had gone before him. Because if you follow the purposes of God, God goes before you. God has already spoken to the king on your behalf. God has already made the king's heart soft. God, and the Bible says, and I love this, because in verse 6, the Bible just emphasizes it for us. And he says on chapter 2, verse 6, I spoke to the king and the queen was beside him. What queen are we talking about? We're talking about Esther. Yeah, we are coming before the king, but Esther is already sitting here. Even before you spoke, God planted Esther. Whatever God has sent you to fix, he has already planted the Esther's there. If they're already sitting down beside the king, ready to intercede if need be on your behalf. If you follow that vision, provision is not an issue. God has gone before you. All that God is waiting is for your heart to engage and for the temperature of your heart to be ripe. So the king says, Nehemiah, I'm on your side. What do you need? He gives him all the provisions that he needs in order for him to go um, in front of the people. And Nehemiah has already planned because when they ask him, you know, sometimes you have a burden and if someone asks you, so what can I do for you? You don't even know. But Nehemiah was set. He already knew what he was going to ask for before he even got into the situation. And he was ready. He said, give me letters, give me this, give me the other. He knew what he needed. We need to get ready for what it is God is going to do. We need to get ready. We know what it is we need. We know what to ask. We know where to go. Get yourself ready. The next point I want to point out, like point number three from Nehemiah's journey of rebuilding the walls, is that Nehemiah did not do the work by himself. That wall was big. And in the end of chapter two, Nehemiah has not told anybody about his plans. He's just hiding it in his heart. 
And towards the end of chapter 2, verses 16 to 18, thereabout, Nehemiah tries to go around the whole wall to inspect it, to see what repairs are needed. But then the Bible says, but his donkey was not able to go past certain points. Take some time and read. I promise you it's in the Bible. He, his donkey was not able to navigate certain places. So he only saw part of the wall. Let me tell you something. In the task that God has given you, you will not have all the answers by yourself. You will not be able to navigate the whole thing by yourself. You are going to need the people of God to work with you. The Bible says how Nehemiah did it and how it happened in 52 uh, days is he began to speak to the people. He got the elders, the ministers together and he invited them. Now come, let us build this wall together. Amen. You'll find that um, in about verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the distress we are in. How Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. Part of your task in fixing things, I don't know, I don't care what the magnitude is. Part of the answer is going to be in you using your people's skills to persuade other people to work with you. I don't care if the job is spiritual or secular. You cannot do any work without getting people to work with you. God has made sure that he does not give you 100% of the ability. God has made sure, even though Pastor Lincoln is the anointed man of God. However, when you get to chapter 3, you read how they did it in 52 days. The Bible says that each tribe was doing the part which was near them. You read that whole of it, Elia, Elishab and the high priest, they built the sheep gate and they consecrated. Then the sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate and they hung its door. Next to them, Meremoth, the son of Erijah, made the repairs. Next to them, somebody made the fish gate, somebody did the old gate, somebody did whatever other gate there was. There is somebody in place, ready. They just need someone to summon them to work. This work of God is a corporate thing. I need you, you need me. We need to work together to fix things. We need to work together to get it done. Amen. The miracle begins when we all get stuck in. If it was a small handful, um, as in Nehemiah and his few buddies who went back, if it was just that, it never would have done, been done in 52 days. Tell your neighbor, we need you to do your corner. God has an army. You are part of that army and we need you to engage and to fix your gates. 
There is a gate that is close by you. I may not even see it. But you see it because you're close to it. You see it because it's right by your side. There are aspects in the church that we cannot fix from the platform because we can't see them. That gate is there. It's your gate. And God is calling you to fix your gate. And when you fix your gate and I fix my gate, we will build the wall in 52 days and the place will be secure. But you need to fix your gate. I don't know what your gate is. You know, there are some people who sit there and they're like, why don't the leaders see that this gate here is broken? That Pastor Lincoln doesn't see anything. Can he not see us? Can he not see that we are not reaching the over 50s? My dear, if you're an over 50, fix your gate. Why doesn't he do fix the under 21s? Our donkey cannot reach the over under 21s. I am pleading with those that are under 21. Fix the under 21 gate. Sort it out. Each one of us has a part of the wall to build. Each one of us has an, a bit that we must be doing. We must find our part and do it. And if we do it and we do it quick, we will get our nation restored. I'm running out of time. Next thing that happens. As soon as the people of God arise, as soon as they put their hands to the plow, as soon as the people of God begin to be productive, as soon as they turn their hearts to the purposes of God, Bang, opposition will come. That I'll give you free of charge. Opposition is not a sign that you have missed it. Opposition is not a sign that God is not with you. Opposition is usually a sign that you are on the right track. It is usually a sign that somebody has got nervous about the things that you have begun and is doing his best to distract you and to stop you from doing what God called you to do. Opposition is a good thing. The minute Nehemiah arises, the Sanbalats and whatever their names are, they arise, Tobiah, and they begin to speak to him and, and despise him and show him how small and how feeble they are and how unable they are and how they are going to be defeated and how even what they have built is rubbish because when a fox gets on it, it's going to fall apart. But let me tell you, however loud the enemy has shouted or oh, shouts you are going to complete this task keep your head down keep your prayer going and keep going opposition is a sign we're on the right track because from the days of john the baptist the kingdom of god suffers violence and the violent take it by force i don't care when you know you start ministry and then somebody laughs and that's it you pack it in no 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 that was just the beginning that was an indicator god was showing you that there is nervousness in the other camp there is nervousness that is why people are speaking against you 
All you need to do is in one hand take the weapon and in the other hand take your hole, take your implement of work, work and war, work and war and let us build this thing. Let us build this thing. I want to read you an exhortation from Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 14. I'm coming to a close. Verse 14 says, and I looked, this is after the enemy has come against us. Let me read from 11. Our adversaries say they will, ni- they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them, they came and told us 10 times, my God, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. They told them how many times? 10 times. They kept saying it. Whatever you do, the enemy is coming. Whatever you do, they will be upon us. What does Nehemiah say? I positioned the men and I set the, fami- the people according to their families with their swords, with their spears, and with their bows. And I looked and arose and I said to the nobles of the people and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord great and awesome and fight for your brethren and fight for your sons and fight for your daughters and fight for your wives and fight for your houses and fight for revival and fight for the kingdom and fight for healing of the sick and fight for deliverance of those who are oppressed. Remember the power of your God. Arise and let us fight. Let us fight and reach for the restoration of God's kingdom. Let us fight for the salvation of souls. Take your weapons, let us fight. Take your weapons, let us fight. Let us fight and let us work at the same time. Let us arise in the strength that God gives us. Let us fight for our neighborhood. Let us fight for revival. Let us fight for a new thing. Let us fight for London. Let us fight for Camberwell. Ah, you don't hear me. This is the time for us to arise and fight. This is the time for us to arise in the power of God. Let us fight for our families. Let us fight for our teenage children. Let us fight for them to come out of bondage. It is time for us to arise. It is time for us to lay a claim on the kingdom. It is time for us to build that wall. Arise for the name of the Lord is strong and mighty. Arise for there is a great God in our midst. Let us fight 